Well, as you are familiar, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, uh, we have started journeying through the Gospel of John. And specifically in the past few weeks, we've, we've followed John's retelling of some of the, uh, the events from Jesus' life, specifically as he started performing some signs. And so we saw that he performed a sign at the wedding in Cana, where he turned water into wine. And then we also saw, while it may not seem to many as like a miracle, it was a sign in what he did in the temple, how he cleared out the temple from the, the merchants who were selling uh, sacrificial animals. We talked about that last week and the money changers. And he's done all of this so that he could accomplish his purpose, as he states in John chapter 20, as I remind you every week. This is why John writes. John 20, verses 30 through 31. I am writing these things. Jesus did many other signs. That's not recorded in this book. But I'm writing these so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing that, you would have eternal life. So his approach in his gospel, he's defending the deity of Christ. I'm writing so that you may know he is God in the flesh. And also evangelistic in his purpose. I want you to believe that because when you believe that, you have eternal life. And so we saw over the past couple weeks, there's this pattern that we identified. It was two patterns, actually. A pattern of belief and a pattern of disbelief. And to refresh your memory, the pattern of belief looks like Jesus doing the sign. The sign revealing His glory. His glory is who He is. His identity. Man seeing that glory and man believing. That's the pattern of belief. The pattern of disbelief looks very similar as we discussed last week. Jesus does the sign. The sign reveals His glory. Man rejects that glory. Man suppresses that truth. Man challenges the authority of that glory. Or they just ask for more evidence, as we saw in the the Jews last week. This morning, we take a break from the signs, and we begin studying the words of Christ in one of the hallmark chapters of this gospel, John chapter 3. And in this passage, we are introduced to something new. Something that can be very unsettling and disturbing. The existence of incomplete belief. We will see that there is an additional outcome when God reveals His glory through His Son, Jesus Christ. That there are some who believe, but that belief is incomplete. And what does that look like? If you want to follow along with the pattern, you have Jesus doing the sign. That sign revealing His glory Man seeing the sign. Not seeing the glory, but seeing the external works of Christ and believing in Him as the one who is performing those works, but not in His glory. And we'll see that played out this morning. And that's a disturbing reality. This is not the only time that Jesus speaks of this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
These were people who believed. I believed in you. I, I did works in your name. And on that judgment day, Jesus says to them, I never knew you. And that's a disturbing reality for some of us. That we could, one could go their whole life believing and having incomplete belief because their belief is based in something that does not produce salvation. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at that because that is what John 2, 23 through 25 is discussing and then uses Nicodemus as an illustration of that. It is loaded with some difficult sayings and some tough truths. Part of the beauty, remember, of John's gospel is that he uses very simple words to communicate profound truths. Remember, we go all the way back to John chapter 1. You look at those words when, when John wrote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Those are simple words that an elementary school student could understand. But when you put them together, that's profound truth. And he does that again this morning in this famous dialogue with the the Pharisee Nicodemus. But before we get into that conversation, let's finish chapter 2, because I want you to see the truth of incomplete belief communicated And then I want you to look at Nicodemus as an example of that truth. Now, I am of the opinion that verses 23 through 25 of chapter 2 probably should have been considered as the beginning of chapter 3. If you go back to the original writings, those chapter markings didn't exist. And so, you know, over time, someone made the decision, hey, we're trying to split up these units of thought so it would be helpful for us. I mean, those chapters help us, right? If if you're in your daily reading, I mean, it helps you to be, okay, I'm going to go from here to here. I'm going to read five chapters today. But sometimes when you do that, you kind of miss out on the context, especially in this case, because I think what we see is we see a, a truth communicated about many and then individualized with Nicodemus. It doesn't affect inerrancy of Scripture or anything. Scripture is still inerrant. I just think you'll see as we transition from the truth to the illustration that these two lines of thought go together. So first, let's look at incomplete belief in verses 23 through 25 of John chapter 2. John writes, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In verse 23, John says that many people believed in Jesus' name while they were in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. That's good, right? That's That's a good thing for John to describe. He said that they saw his signs and they believed. That fits perfectly with John's purpose. I want you to read this. Uh, They're going to put it up on the monitors. This is the purpose statement that that I quoted you earlier. But read this and compare it to verse 23 and look at the similarities. John 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The signs are recorded so that people would believe. 
In chapter 2, John wrote, many people believed when they saw the signs. So you would think that would be a good thing, right? The momentum seems to be continuing from where we left off last week as the disciples believed. And so it's just continuing. More and more people are believing. But then we get to the troubling verses in 24 and 25. You see that contrasting conjunction, that three-letter word, but? That kind of puts a halt at this positive view that we would be having. People are believing, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. That word that we have translated into our language as entrust is the same root word of belief that he describes the many believing. So he says many believed, but Jesus did not believe or entrust himself back to them. What in the world is that? I mean, I thought Jesus came and revealed his glory so that people would believe in him and that when they believed in him, that he would receive them. Here it says he did not entrust himself to them. Why is he not receiving these people who are believing? It says they believe in his name. That's confusing. That's hard. This is one of those passages that you, when you're reading John's gospel in, in story form, right? Because this, this is his narrative of everything that he saw. You can kind of go through this and you, if you're looking for the, the true meaning, that's kind of causes you to pause. People are believing, but Jesus is not entrusting himself back to them. What is that about? Well, I would ask the question, are they believing in him? Or what are they believing about him? In John 20, his purpose says, so that you may believe that Jesus is what? The Christ, the Son of God. Not that he's a miracle worker. Not that he's a good teacher. Not that he's a prophet come from God. But that he is God in the flesh. Also in verse 23, one of the issues here is it says, many believed in his name when they saw what? The signs. The signs he was doing. They saw the signs and they believed. How does that compare to what led the disciples to believe? Let's look. John 1.14. We've already read, we've already studied this, but I want you to see it. And the Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His, what? His glory. Not His signs. We have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You go to after the wedding miracle, where He turns water into wine. Verse 11 of chapter 2. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee. And the sign did what? It manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. The signs in and of themselves do not have the power to lead to salvation. 
what John is saying is that seeing the signs and believing that Jesus can do the signs is not salvation. But the signs are intended to reveal the glory. And when you see the glory and you believe in who he is and what he's done on your behalf, then salvation comes. And that is complete belief, true saving faith. If you go through our new members class, we kind of talk about this. That there's a difference between faith and true saving faith. This is a prime example that we quote. People were believing, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. The reformers developed, there were three Latin phrases that they, that they developed as part of their, their way to communicate this. And the three Latin words, I'm going to say them again. I always say this. You do not need to know the words, but you need to know what they mean. Noticia, ascentia, fiducia. Noticia. You cannot believe in what you have not heard. That's Romans 10. You have to have the information. You have to recognize it. That's the first stage of true saving faith. Ascentia is rising, ascending, right? You are rising to that truth. You are acknowledging that that information that has been presented to you is true. And what happens is a lot of times people stop right there. Even the demons believe and they shudder. They believe that it's true. They can't fight that. So what's the difference then? What is true saving faith? Complete faith, complete belief. Fiducia comes in. And that is where you trust. You trust in that truth for your own salvation. I use a silly illustration about a chair. If I've come from a culture that doesn't have chairs, and I come into your home, and I'm just standing around, and we're visiting, what are you going to do? People from the South, what are you likely going to do besides, hey, do you want some sweet tea? What are you going to ask? Come in and take a seat. Well, I don't know what a seat is, so then what do you have to do? You have to describe to me what a chair is. I have to have the information first. And then I look, and you sit down. I see Jeff sitting down right now. I have to ascend to the truth. I can't deny the fact that this chair is going to hold him up. It's working. I see it. It's defying gravity. Somehow it's working. I'm acknowledging that it's true. What good does that do me, though? It isn't until I trust that that chair is going to hold me up, and I sit down in it trusting that that truth is true for me. And that is true saving faith. When you have the information of who Jesus Christ is, you ascend to that truth and you recognize that, hey, this is a reality and I believe that it is true, but I believe that it is true for me. That when Jesus went to the cross, he went for my sin and my transgression. And that's what we're getting into this morning. The disciples saw his glory and they believed. Remember, a few weeks ago, I brought this up when we started with the signs. I told you the story about how, as a kid, for Christmas one year, I got a present that I'd always wanted, but I missed the message that was being communicated by my parents when they gave me that gift. I was caught up in the gift, 
but I, I failed to see their glory. Their, a part of who they were was that they loved me. And I responded in a way that if you were there, you remember, was evil. <laughs> I warned you of that because that is what is happening with people then in our, in our passage today and still today. So although many people believed in Jesus when they saw the signs, their faith was incomplete because they had failed to see his glory. And then we get to see a little bit of that glory in verses 24 through 25. It says, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he knew what was in them. I referenced this last week as we saw how he looked through the external righteous appearance of those merchants that were selling things and the money changers. It seemed like they were providing a service to people, allowing them to worship. But Jesus saw through that and saw their heart because he knows what is in man. He also sees right through the external appearance of belief. And he sees incomplete belief. External belief. Belief in only what, in, in what can be physically seen and not spiritually perceived. And it's here that he does that. He sees through to their hearts and recognizes incomplete belief. And then we get into chapter 3. And we have this real-life illustration of an individual who is representing that many who believed. You'll see the similarities. They believed in Jesus because they saw the signs, not the glory. Look at the words of Nicodemus, starting in verses 1 through 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Our illustration is a man by the name of Nicodemus, and he was not an ordinary man. Nicodemus was a Pharisee of the Jews. The Pharisees were very influential with common Jewish people. In contrast, the Sadducees, they were like wealthy, religious elite. They were aristocrats that had nothing to do with the, the low folk. But the Pharisees were the teachers. And so they're the ones that are teaching everyone the law. They were also known for setting themselves apart and keeping the law more religiously than a common Jew would. Even establishing through the Sanhedrin, they would establish ex extra laws. I may have mentioned this before, but if you were a Pharisee on the Sabbath, you weren't supposed to look into a mirror. Ladies, you wouldn't be able to look into a mirror on the Sabbath. Now, their mirrors in their day weren't, they weren't uh, mirrors like what we have today, glass. They would have been like a piece of metal. But you could not look into it because you might be tempted to fix a strand of hair. And that would be considered work. And so the Pharisees, they, they created this additional law to prevent people from breaking God's law. Things like that, as ridiculous as that. If a chicken laid an egg, you cannot eat that egg unless you were also prepared to kill that chicken that day. Which is kind of weird because to me that seems like work. But if it was on the Sabbath, you had to go all the way. That was just one of their weird little quirky laws that they had developed. And that's who Nicodemus is. Keep that in mind, that he is one who has kept the law closely throughout his whole life. 
Not only was he a Pharisee, but our text says he was also a ruler of the Jews. That means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was part of the governing body of the Jewish religion. You got a prominent figure here. And this guy knows his stuff. We also see later that Jesus refers to him as the teacher. That is a definite article. He is the teacher. So it looks like what we have here is rabbi of rabbis. He is the one that is teaching and training all of the rabbis. This guy has risen through the Jewish ranks. He is well-educated, he is influential, and he is well-known. Likely explains why he came to Jesus at night. Now, you can go, and there are books written about why, Jesus, why he came to Jesus at night. Some will spiritualize it and say, oh, well, he was coming out of the darkness of his own heart to Jesus. I kind of venture towards the, the interpretation that he came to Jesus when the sun wasn't up. It was night. And he would do that possibly to avoid being seen, going to this man. Remember, the tension has already begun. Jesus has put a halt to their money-making scheme in the temple. So it's not like the Pharisees don't know who he is. So he comes to him at night. And when he gets there, he says the following. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. So we have this rabbi of rabbis coming to Jesus and addressing him with the title rabbi, teacher. Nicodemus must have been exposed to some of Jesus' teaching while Jesus was there for the Passover for him to reference his ability to teach others. And he says, we know. Now, it is possible that he might have been referring to the Pharisees. Speaking on behalf of them, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Possibly even the Sanhedrin. Or he could be representing the collective whole of those who have started discussing and saying, hey, this guy that's been teaching at Passover, we recognize him as a teacher that's come from God, a prophet. That's a great compliment, don't you think? I mean, if that was me, and someone were to approach me and say, hey, look, I've been sitting in some of your, your teachings. You are a teacher from God. That's, that's as high as I could get. <laughs> Besides being saying, hey, you look so much like Jesus, I can't tell the difference. For me, that's good. But for Jesus, hey, you're a great teacher. Come from God. No, he is God. You see, you see where that incomplete belief is coming in? He's recognizing some good in Jesus, but he's not seeing his glory in all that he is. Nicodemus knows this to be true because he says, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now you see the connection between verses 23 through 25 and Nicodemus. Many believed in his name when they saw his signs. Nicodemus says, I know you're a teacher. We believe you are a teacher from God because we have seen your signs. 
Nicodemus believed he was a great teacher, but not the Messiah. Nicodemus believed that he saw the signs because he saw the signs, but he did not recognize the glory of Christ. Nicodemus believed that God was with him, but not that he was God. I wonder how many of us believe that way this morning, the same way as Nicodemus. Again, this is one of those passages like last week that they're difficult to preach because they're not, it's not always fun. That this is a disturbing reality that is unsettling for us. The reality that one day some will say, Lord, Lord, I believed. I saw the work of your redemption through people in our church body. I saw your, your work of reconciliation take root in our community. I was a part of it and I saw it. I experienced it. I believed. I walked the aisle and said the words that my pastor told me to say. I attended church religiously. I went across the globe so that I could see your goodness, and I saw it. I was baptized. I loved my neighbors. I went to the back-to-school blast yesterday. All to which Jesus will respond, I never knew you. And you never knew me. You saw my work, but you missed me. You missed my glory. I revealed it to the whole world, and it was right in front of you, and you missed it. If that is you this morning, I pray that you would see him today. I hope you get past the signs, and by his signs, by his teachings, you don't see a great teacher. You don't see someone giving good moral advice, but you see the Savior of the world. If that is you, I I just ask, if you're tracking with me right now, I ask you to tune in to what we're about to read, because here in verses 3 through 6, Jesus gives us the cure for incomplete belief. This is what you need to know. Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is his spirit. Now it's worth pointing out that Jesus goes into this discussion about how to enter the kingdom of God without Nicodemus bringing that up. Right? Nicodemus says, hey, you're a great teacher. We've seen your signs. We believe that. And Jesus says, hey, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom. Why does he do that? Because he sees, he knows what is in man. And what he does is when Nicodemus approaches him and gives him this compliment, he goes right to the heart of Nicodemus. His main concern on his heart and in his mind, have I done enough to enter the kingdom? Have I done all that you have asked so that I may enter into your kingdom? Jesus' response would have been a devastating blow to Nicodemus. 
He says, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom, you must be born again. Jesus is speaking of what, of what we refer to within Christianity as the new birth or regeneration. This is a requirement for all of us to believe in the gospel because naturally we don't. We don't understand things that are spiritual in our nature. So we have to be reborn in the spirit, granted new spiritual life. Let me give you some scriptural evidence of that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man, when we come into this world without the Holy Spirit giving us new life, we don't understand the things of the Spirit. So it makes sense that one might miss out on the glory of Jesus Christ right in front of them. I'm going to have to do this thing, I think. We learned that in Ephesians 2, that we were once spiritually dead in our trespasses. Spiritually dead people don't see the glory of Jesus Christ. They, they fail to understand the spiritual truth of their depravity. They see the, the physical works, but they don't see their need for a Savior. They don't see how Jesus dying on the cross, raising from the dead, pays the, the consequences that they have for their sin. And they don't see how his ascension to the Father's right hand until the time he will return and take his bride offers hope to the believer. That's foolishness. That's folly. Jesus told Nicodemus that one must be born again. In verse 5, he also tells them that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, they cannot enter into the kingdom of, kingdom of God. Now, there are many different attempts to interpret that phrase when he talks about both of water and of spirit, specifically the water part. I'll give you some ideas. I'll give you where I fall afterwards. Some say the water birth is referring to a physical birth. So you have the physical birth and the spiritual birth. The water birth being when a mother's water breaks and then she delivers the child. That is possible. Verse 6, Jesus says what? That, is, that that is born of the flesh is flesh, and that is born of the spirit is spirit. So you have a flesh birth and you have a spirit birth. It's possible. Although I'm not sure that's the way in which birth was described in that day. Others say that the water birth is referring to baptism by water, such as the baptism of John the Baptist or of the Christian baptism. It seems a little odd for Jesus to go from referring to the one new birth that must happen and then talking about two components of it. It's possible, I guess. Additionally, Nicodemus wouldn't have understood a Christian baptism at that time because that had not occurred yet. And why would he struggle with a reference to the baptism like John the Baptist? Because remember, John the Baptist had gained a lot of popularity in his day. That would have made sense, but it seems like Nicodemus struggles with that. 
I find one explanation better, and I think it's grounded in Scripture. So this is where I'm going to fall. Jesus pointing Nicodemus to something that he, a Pharisee, a teacher, would understand. Back to a passage from the prophet Ezekiel. A man of Nicodemus' stature and profession surely would have known this reference. It's Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 23 through 29, the first part of 29. This is the Lord speaking to his prophet Ezekiel. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. Quick side note, I love that. Because when you're reading Old Testament, I want you to see how God's desire has always been to use the Jews to reach the nations. They were supposed to be a blessing. Remember, we talked about that recently. I love that the whole plan, you get to see we. We are considered the nations in this case. We were a part of his original plan. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and all, from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Water cleanses. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from your uncleanness. It makes sense to me that Jesus would have been referring to the new birth as one of both spiritual regeneration and cleansing. And he points Nicodemus to this single new birth that happens. New life must be given which should lead us to the next question. How can one be born again? That's the way Nicodemus responds, right? He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now think about who Nicodemus is. He's well-educated. This is an intelligent man. So I have trouble seeing this question as anything but a rhetorical question. I don't think he really believes that Jesus is telling him to crawl back into his mother's womb and be born physically a second time. Nicodemus is a smart guy. But I think his exaggerated question, him going to that extreme, shows us that he feels the heaviness of what Jesus just told him. Let's think about birth. Let's think about physical birth. What does the baby contribute to that process? Absolutely nothing. Pain, I guess, but the baby has no part in that, right? 
the, the, the new life that is being birthed. Man and woman come together. One cell finds another. A baby is formed. The mother carries the baby for 40 weeks, sometimes less, sometimes more. The mother gives birth. I'm led to believe that the doctor spanks the baby. I'm not sure if that's true, but spanks the baby. There's tears, crying, and there, you, there it is. You have new life. What did the baby contribute to that process? Nothing. So when Jesus tells Nicodemus, the Pharisee of Pharisees, a member of the Sanhedrin, a man who has devoted his whole life to following the law so that he may enter into the kingdom of God. When Jesus says, you must be born again, he's devastated. He feels as though his whole life is a waste. He is an old man by now. That he asked the question, how can I be born again when I'm old? When he says you must be born again, it says, it's as if Jesus is erasing all of this stuff that Nicodemus thought was going to get him into heaven. And he's saying, no, you've got to go all the way back to the beginning. Because all of that doesn't mean anything. I appreciate it, but that's not salvation. He just learned that in order for him to see the kingdom, he must be born again, something that is completely outside of his control. How can I be born again? So you understand his question to Jesus. How is this new birth possible? And if you've been following with me, if you thought maybe I'm like Nicodemus, you may have the same question at this point. Okay, all of this stuff that I've done in my life means nothing. Same thing for Nicodemus. Nicodemus did far more than most people in their lifetime. And Jesus tells him, you must be born again. Erase all that. That doesn't mean anything for the kingdom of God. You've got to believe. You must be born again to do that. You've lived a good life. You've tried to do the things that you're supposed to do. It may have been difficult for you to come this morning, but you felt like you needed to be here. And now you may be realizing that all of that means nothing. You haven't seen the glory of Christ. You haven't believed in his death, burial, and resurrection. And look, I don't judge you for that. Because what I just read to all of us is that you can't see it unless something outside of your control occurs. New birth. Regeneration. You must be given a new spiritual life. For others in this room, for those of you who have believed, and I'm talking about true saving belief, all the way to fiducia where you've trusted that chair to hold you up. You've believed in the glorious good news because you saw it and you believed it. What you may be learning right now, this is good for you. You're growing deeper in your faith because you may be learning for the first time what occurred prior to that. That something happened before you saw it and you believed it. 
you were given a new spiritual life. You were awakened so that you could see it and believe it. So who gives this new life? Let's look in verses 7 through 8. The giver of the new life. Jesus told Nicodemus, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus, in his mercy, tells the great Jewish teacher Nicodemus not to focus on the fact that he was wrong. Recognize it, but don't put your focus on that. More importantly, focus on the truth that I just communicated to you. You must be born again. That's what's important. And then he talks about the giver of new life. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He compares the Holy Spirit's movement upon men and women's hearts to that of the wind. It moves where it wishes, not under the direction of man, and when it moves, you hear it sound. You don't know where it came from or even where it's going, but you know that the wind just blew. I need the wind to blow on me right now. A wind, the breeze is nice when it's hot. You can feel it. You don't know where it came from, and you don't know where it's going, but you know that it happened. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He, the Holy Spirit, is a person. He moves where he wishes, not under the direction of man. You recall John 1.13, when Jesus, the Word who gives, gives us the right to become children of God, we become children born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is his work. And when he moves upon the hearts of men and women and grants them new spiritual life, they are awakened. And that happened to those of us who believe. We, we don't know where he came from, and we don't know to whom else he's going But we do know that something has changed in our hearts and given us understanding so that when we hear the gospel possibly preached for the hundredth time in our lives, all of a sudden it makes sense. That's not by accident, and that's not by repetition. That is a miracle. So you want to talk about the signs and wonders of Jesus Christ when the Holy Spirit awakens you and gives you new spiritual life? That is a miracle. And that's one that we we gather every single week and praise him for. Because he's done something that we could not do. It was outside of our control. So what are some implications for us this morning? That's a lot to think about. If you find yourself, look, if you're someone who, I have not believed in Jesus Christ. I have not trusted in that. You're welcome here. You're welcome to come over to my house after. Is it okay if they come over to our house after? <laughs> You're welcome to come over. And we'll, we'll love you just the same. But I want you to know that Jesus has revealed himself and pray that you would see it. He came so that you would have eternal life if you believe in him. 
Not in the external things that he does, but in his glory, in all of his identity. He is a savior. Pray. Pray that God, I'll pray with you, pray that God would give you new spiritual life to see that truth. Because that has to happen. Maybe you fall into this category of, man, I believe, but I might have incomplete belief. If you've put your faith in your good works for God, like Nicodemus did, I hope that this morning you've seen and understood that they aren't good enough. Then the good works don't accomplish it. Scripture points to our good works as filthy rags. They're nothing without true saving belief in Christ. Pray that you too would experience new birth. And for those of us who believe, one of the struggles we have as believers is that we base our joy in whether or not we feel we've pleased our Father by our good works. And I'm not saying you're not supposed to have good works. James, James establishes that fact clearly. Faith without works is dead. Works come from faith. Faith does not come from works. But for those of you who have true saving faith, you are working out your salvation in fear. But I hope you're reminded this morning that your joy is not found in what you do for God. Your joy is found in the grace that he's already given you. Despite the fact that you were undeserving of it, he gave you new birth granted by the Holy Spirit so that you may see the work of his son, Jesus Christ, and be reconciled to the Father and give glory to his name. And as you've been reminded of that, I hope that you see it as praiseworthy. That it is possible that for the first time this morning you learn that your choosing to respond to the offer of salvation was prefaced by the fact that the Holy Spirit gave you new birth so that you could. And that's, that's interesting because I think when we're given, when we come into this spiritual new life, we start from there, right? And so we know what occurred after that happened. Discipleship occurs when we point you to Scripture and say, hey, look, I recognize, but before that, God was doing a work in you that you didn't even know yet. And so we, out of our humility and thankfulness, will go to Him in praise this morning, thanking Him for that new birth that he's given us.